when you think about preservation, most people go, well, preservation just means that I stay stable, that if I have a million dollars or $500,000, whatever that number is, that it basically stays a million dollars or $500,000. But this is a misconception and this is a false theory because really when we're preserving capital, we have to beat a couple demons down and those demons happen to be taxes and inflation. Welcome to the Market Call Show, where we discuss what's happening in the markets and the impact on your investments. Tune in every Thursday on Apple Podcast, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to the Market Call Show. This is Louis Giannis. I am the founder of WealthNet Investments. Today, we have an interesting topic, and I'm really excited about diving in, so let's get going. Giannis here. I want to talk a little bit about performance. A lot of people are asking the question, am I doing well? Because they've been seeing the markets go down. They've been seeing their portfolios that were doing really well and now not doing so well. And the question arises, am I doing okay? Is my performance strong or is my performance not so strong? Should I be doing something different? Should I be adjusting my risk tolerance? So I want to talk a little bit in depth about how can you tell whether or not you're doing well. And in order to do that, you have to think about what your goals are and you have to think about what your benchmarks are. So I'm going to go into how you even decide what a benchmark is. So how can you tell if your investments are doing well if you don't have a benchmark? So let's dive a little bit about benchmarking and let's talk about what benchmarks are. A lot of people say I want to look at the S&P 500 because the S&P 500 is the most common benchmark, if you will, that people look at. The real problem with looking at the S&P 500 as your benchmark is that it's really a misconception because if you were to be benchmarking to the S&P 500, that would assume that you're okay being 100% in stocks and that you would be really focused on U.S. large company stocks. If you look at the history of that index, there are periods of time when it goes down by 50% or more fairly frequently. And I know most people are not okay with watching their portfolio go down by 50% or even a little bit better than 50%. Let's say you beat the benchmark by some amount and you're down 40%. Well, a 40% drop in value for most people is an uncomfortable situation and many people sell out actually and then maybe not participate on the way up like they should. So when I think about benchmarks, I really think outside the box here because when you break this down as to what everybody wants and needs from an investment portfolio, it really comes down to three things. The first thing is preservation of capital. And when you think about preservation, most people go, well, preservation just means that I stay stable, that if I have a million dollars or $500,000, whatever that number is, that it basically stays a million dollars or $500,000. But this is a misconception and this is a false theory because really when we're preserving capital, we have to beat a couple demons down and those demons happen to be taxes and inflation. So let me break that down a little bit because I wanted to pull up current data to talk to you about what that really means. What does it mean if I'm beating taxes and inflation? Well, today, if you look at the tax rates, 
they range. They go all the way from 10%, 12%, 22%, 24%, on and on, all the way up to 37% when you're looking at the federal tax rates. So depending on your income, obviously, you have a higher effective tax rate, which is your total taxes that you pay divided by your total income. So what we're really concerned about is what your taxes are going to be. It could be anything from zero to 37% on the federal taxes, depending on your income. And then you have this little problem of state taxes. And if you look at the state taxes, there's seven states that don't pay taxes. Alaska, Florida, Nevada, South Dakota, Texas, Washington, and Wyoming. At least that's what I could count. So if you're lucky enough to be there, you don't have to worry about those taxes. But if you're not lucky, if you just took the average, I plopped all the rates into a spreadsheet. If you take the average on the high side, it's 5.45% taxes. And on the low side, it's 2.47%. So you need to obviously beat those taxes. So if you put that all together, you could have quite a high tax rate. For example, if you lived in California, you're paying 13.3% on the highest marginal tax bracket. New Jersey, 10.75%, Oregon, 9.9%, Vermont, 8.7%, Minnesota, 9.8%, District of Columbia, 8.95%. So your taxes could be really, really high. For most people, if you average it out, if you're doing fairly well, on the federal side, you could maybe just say average out to 25% marginal tax rate or effective tax rate. And if you're an average taxpayer that's doing well, you're paying about 5% in state tax. So you're looking at about 25%, 20% effective federal, 5%. I'm just looking for a base case. It could be much higher than this, but I want to say, okay, what's a reasonable hurdle rate that we have to beat in taxes, right? Let's just call it 25%. And that's how I built up to it. Just using real data, real tax rates. Let's say it's 25% for both federal and state. Okay, so we got to beat that. But we also have this problem of inflation. So remember, we're just talking about preserving here. If we want to preserve our capital, we have to beat that tax rate. We also have to beat the inflation rate. So let's take a look at inflation. So I ran some numbers. I just plopped in numbers going from 1955 all the way up to February of 2022. That's the most recent data in my database. If you look at that, the average inflation rate averaged 3.56%. 3.56% average. Okay, we got to make a return of 3.56% just to keep up with our purchasing power. Plus, we got to pay taxes on it. Well, with some algebra, you can calculate up divide that out by one minus the tax rate, and that tells you what rate of return you have to get. And basically, a break-even rate of return to beat taxes and inflation, assuming those average inflation and the 25% tax rate, that's 4.75%. Okay, so preserving capital doesn't mean zero. It means I need to make 4.75%. So a lot of people say, well, I want a risk-free rate of return that's gonna give me 4.75%. And if you look at the data, it strongly suggests that that is really not available. For example, if we take the 10-year bond rates, the 10-year treasury bond rates backed by the federal government, you see that the after inflation rate of return is basically zero. It is basically zero. So if you pay taxes on that, you're gonna be slightly negative for most people. We can't really go risk-free to preserve. 
And then some people will say, well, I know of risk-free rate or risk-free rates of return that are better than 5% by buying this real estate or putting some money in some private company. When you actually break it down, there's always some risk that you are taking and that you are, or something that you're giving up. I would say the most common thing that you're giving up is liquidity, the ability to access your money at any time. So if you buy a treasury bill, you can buy and sell those freely. Those are freely traded. If you go into these many other investments, it could be an insurance guarantee. There's going to usually be some lock-in of some sort, or there's going to be something that you're giving up. There is no free lunch, unfortunately, in the world of economics. Milton Friedman talked about that, a famous economist who has greatly influenced a lot of my thinking over the years. I think it's important for us to understand that we should not be delusional about that, but there's always some risk that you're taking on. So preserving capital basically means 4.75%. I would just round it up to 5%. That's what that means. So that means you're going to have to be earning a rate of return that generally is going to require some level of risk taking, whether it be locking up the investment or whether that be uh, accepting some volatility or movement in the investment over time. Then the question becomes, okay, if I'm going to be doing that, that's what I'm going to need to preserve capital. But there's two other things that you need to think about. Because remember, I said there was three things that you need to think about. The first was preserving capital. All I did was talk about preserving capital at this point. Now I want to move into the next thing, which is growing capital. So if we're going to grow capital, that means we're going to increase our wealth and our purchasing power. That means our rate of return is going to need to be greater than 5% which means we needed to find those investments that have higher potential returns and minimize the risks, okay? So we're going to need to make more than 5%. We're going to need to generally take more risks to do that. And that takes more work. That means more volatility, more up and down. Number three, the third thing that everybody really wants at some point with their investments is providing income. Providing income is a different type of investment strategy, and most people want all three, a combination of all three, preserving the money, growing it as well, and providing income. And in order to do that, you have to do a benchmark that is appropriate for you. So now I'm really moving towards this idea of a benchmark and how to measure How am I doing? This is what this is all about. How am I doing? How is my performance? And is it okay? So we've established that we need to take some level of volatility in order to preserve capital even, and that we also need even more so if we're going to grow capital and grow wealth, and that providing income needs to also be part of that equation. If you worry about your investments, need to make complex financial decisions, or pay unnecessary taxes, a lack of proper financial planning and investing may already be costing you a great deal. When you are ready to turn your peace of wealth into peace of mind, go to wealthnetinvest.com and click on the schedule a call button to talk to us and get a free consultation today. Let's talk about various types of investments. We also talked that risk-free bonds, like a 10-year treasury, which also has interest rate risk, but basically there's no default risk. You basically are going to not beat inflation. So you're going to take on more risk. So I want to bring in the concept of a blended benchmark. And now I want to get into the solution. I believe that a blended benchmark is a good way to think about your performance. And let me first just define what a blended benchmark is. That is a benchmark that has different asset types or different asset classes like stocks and bonds 
and it blends them together in percentages. And that percentage is customized to whatever your particular financial plan requires. And that is unique to most people, but we find that most people will fall in five different categories that go from preservation of capital to conservative, to balanced, to growth, and to aggressive. Most people will fall in those bands. That gives you about 20% room between each risk profile. And those are just center points. Obviously, depending on market conditions, you'll have to be, if you're smart, you'll invest away from those benchmarks. So it's really important to understand that. But that's a baseline for you to consider your performance. So once that blended benchmark is established, you have to take it a step further in order to see if I'm doing okay, if you will. And that is to do what's called performance attribution. Performance attribution is really dissecting your decisions, your investment management decisions, whether you're working with an investment advisor or you're managing it yourself. I find that most people that are managing themselves never do performance attribution on their own work. That's one of the reasons why I think working with a professional that does do that is really, really important. Let me define what performance attribution is. I really like, and I'm a proponent of using a way of doing performance attribution. It's called the Brinson Fockler method. That's B R I N S O N dash F A C H L E R method. So, our systems have that built into it so that we can analyze performance attribution so we can look at decision making. Because what matters is, as all, and this is with anything, is that you're looking at your decisions and you're looking at how they're doing and then you make adjustments. Because there's always going to be times when you're off track and you just need to get on track. So, it's a really good way to be consistent in the evaluation of your performance to say, Am I doing okay? Let me dissect that down a little bit. The first part of that is to look at your allocation decision or your asset allocation decision. What this is, is this is looking at the asset types or the asset classes and to see how your investment portfolio is balanced compared to your blended benchmark. So there may be times when you will have more U.S. stocks than normal or you would have less U.S. stocks or international stocks or maybe you have more inflation protected bonds than normal. So basically, it's going to evaluate, is my asset allocation decision adding value? Is it adding value or hurting value? Because that is one of your kind of existential decisions is how am I going to allocate my overall asset class? And then the second thing that you look at is what's called the selection effect. And that's basically saying, okay, within each asset class, the actual stocks and bonds, the actual investments that were selected, how did they do versus their benchmarks? Did they do better or worse? So for example, if you were looking at a tech stock, did that tech stock do better or worse in the index? Did that utility company or did that financial service company do better or worse than the benchmark? This helps you understand whether or not your method for selecting individual securities has added or hurt from value. So it's really a dissecting. And then the third has to do with the interaction effect. The interaction effect has more to do with the diversification and the timing. It's really important that you understand that. But the first two that I would look at would be your allocation effect and your selection effect, because that could really tell you whether or not am I doing okay. 
Because I think a lot of people look at their performance and they think they're doing okay and they're really not doing very well or vice versa. They might look at the performance and go, wow, we're really doing bad. And then you look at it, you go, wow, we really are doing well. Now, one of the things I want to mention is that it's important to understand that time is a key element. Time is a key element. I think people need to look at the evaluation period or the length of time that they are evaluating performance because that's really important. And let me explain why. Remember when I talked earlier that you have to take some level of risk in order to beat the inflation rate and the tax rate. That means you need to have some level of fluctuation in the portfolio. And that means you could have a great strategy whether you're short-term down and you're not in a positive return territory and you may not be beating the taxes and inflation side. So it's important to understand that you have a correct evaluation period. And one way to look at this and to think about this is to look at rolling return periods, meaning what is the rate of return in certain investments rolling over a certain time frame, like one year, three year, five year, 10 year, 20 year. And what percentage of the time do you have positive rates of return? Because that will give you an idea relative to an asset class or an investment class, what kind of length and time horizon you need to have for an investment to work itself out to make that positive rate of return. How much room do you need to give it? There's an interesting study out there that if you look at long, long rates of return, going back all the way to 1926, I believe, let's see, this is going back all the way from January of 1926. There's a database provider, Global Financial Data, that has a lot of data, return data. And if you go back and you look at various rolling periods of the stock market, I'm just using this as an example because everybody is familiar with the stock market. If you look at the percentage of times that you have positive returns, it's really eye-opening. So first you want to say, okay, what percentage of the one-year holding period am I going to be up or have I historically been up? That number is actually 73.9% of the time, according to their data. So if you look at five-year rolling periods of time, it's up almost 88% of the time. And if you look at 10-year periods of time, it's ninety, almost 95% of the time. And then it goes up to 100% of the time and so on and so forth. So what this shows is that you need to have a longer-term time frame, obviously, when you're dealing with longer-term asset classes. You may have periods of time when things are not doing as well in a particular asset class. There are ways that you could do better than that by having better security selection and by having better timing. Timing is important. There's some people that say timing doesn't matter. I'm telling you, timing does matter. And it's important that you evaluate your performance, by the way, using what's called time-weighted returns, which means that you're looking at the cash flows when they came in and when they go out, because that will give you a more accurate performance metric that you can evaluate your performance, okay? You wanna be looking, making sure you're consistent about when money comes in, when money comes out, and it's compounded and it's linked. I'm a chartered financial analyst. For those of you who may know what that means, it's kind of a, it's a very technical field, but basically what it is, is there's very specific ways we wanna look at performance so that we can be evaluating correctly how your performance is doing. The bottom line with that whole little rant there on time frame is that your benchmark needs to look at your time frame. 
So if you have a shorter term time frame, obviously your benchmark needs to reflect that. If you have a longer term time frame, then your performance should reflect that as well. And it also should reflect your temperament because we do some what's called a risk alize analysis where we can look and say, okay, what kind of movements that 95% of the time you would be okay for it to be within. And that could help us know, like, how can we maximize return given how you feel about fluctuations? And it's so funny because most people, when you do kind of a rational analysis and you can think about it, you'll have one set of risk profiles. And then when you're in the thick of it and you're in the heat of battle, people tend to shift their time frame. This is a no-no. This is a real no-no. So this is where behavioral coaching and working with an advisor that has a solid strategy can keep you on track. So you want to make sure that you get your risk profile as part of this equation when you're setting up your benchmarks and the advisory process that you go through should do that, okay? So time frame is important. We've kind of gone through this whole concept of performance and I'm hoping that this can help you. So you want to have an appropriate benchmark based on your time frame, your risk profile, your liquidity requirements, all the things that are related to you. And you also need to make sure that you are not just doing that, but you need to make sure that you understand what is required to Actually, you have to have like a 5% rate of return just to stay even in a portfolio that's preserving capital. And if you want to grow beyond that, then that requires taking more volatility and that if you take other investments that are quote unquote risk-free, whether it be real estate or other things, you're giving up something else, right? There's always something you're giving up. It could be liquidity. It could be taxes. It could be lots of different things. But having that appropriate benchmark for you, for your financial plan, and then to take it one step further and to do performance attribution to say, how am I doing within the asset classes? How am I doing with my overall asset allocation decision, overweighting or underweighting, having more or less relative to my benchmark? Then you will be able to tell my friends whether or not you are doing well or whether you're not doing so well. That's all I have for you right now. But before I let you go, I want to tell you about my book, The Financial Freedom Blueprint. You may already know about this, but I want to tell you this book, I highly recommend getting it. I'm going to give you a link down below that will allow you to get this book. I am signing these books and sending them out and highly recommend getting them, get them for your friends. This book is breaking down where I talk about the seven steps to accelerate your path to prosperity. And I also talk about a lot of frequent questions that people have, like, should I be maxing out my 401k? What should I be doing about my house? Should I pay my house off? What do I do with the stock that I have? And how do I optimize the taxes for my situation? It's real hands-on, real-world stuff in here. I highly recommend getting it. Anyhow, I hope you're doing well, and I hope that this information about seeing whether or not you're doing well can be helpful for you. That's all for now. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. For the latest episode of The Market Call Show, make sure to like, subscribe, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Go to marketcallshow.com for all our past episodes and sign up to get alerts for new episodes. If you enjoyed the content of this episode, please leave us a five-star review and comments. The information in this podcast is informational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. 
To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision. WealthNet Investments is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where WealthNet Investments and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure.